Good morning. How are we today? Good? We're good, Eric. Thanks. Thank you. Terrific. Um, hey, if you got your Bibles, go to the Gospel of, or the Gospel, the Book of Acts. Kind of the Gospel of Acts. It's still good news. Uh, we are, for those of you who don't know, as a church, we're just reading through the New Testament this year, one chapter a day, five days a week. Uh, if you would like to join that reading plan, uh, it's on the website. Also, these little deals here, there's a printout version of it. Uh, there's also these little bookmark things you can get and join others that are kind of asking these same questions of the text every day as they read along in it. Um, I'm, I'm excited to share this this morning. I mean, I'm excited every week to share the truth of God's word. Uh, but it's a, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, and as we've been reading this past week, these first couple chapters in the book of Acts, there's a, there's a weird, I say weird, I, I mean it's weird to me, there's a, there's a weird mingling of, of both helplessness and hopefulness that, that happens when, or at least that's what's been happening in my heart this past week as, I, as I've read these chapters. Helplessness because, guys, we can't do anything apart from him. I mean, Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that word nothing, you know what it literally means? Nothing. Gotcha. N nothing. And yet, so on the one hand you feel helpless, but on the other hand you feel hopeful. Because you read these promises in this account of what God can do. And we serve the same risen Christ. We serve the same good Father. And the same Holy Spirit lives in each one of us and is at work still today on the earth. And so I wanna, I wanna talk about the Holy Spirit specifically, some of the marks of the Holy Spirit that we see here in the book of Acts. Now, I, there, there's really an endless list of um, what it looks like when the Holy Spirit moves or, or marks. I mean, there's, there's nothing that he, that he can't do, although there are, some, there are some really big ideas that I want us to get from the text today. I mean, as you go on throughout the book of Acts, you'll see this again. I mean, you'll see generosity. You'll see people sharing, you know, what they have and, and giving it away. Um, you'll see people going out on mission. Uh, you'll, see, you'll see healing. You'll see... Um, repentance. You'll see people coming and burning their scrolls and their magic arts and their witchcraft things like they did in the, in, in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And you see the Holy Spirit doing all sorts of things. And there's all sorts of things that need done among us this morning in our lives, in our church, in our community. Uh, but I guess the biggest idea that I want to communicate this morning from these first couple chapters is, is that the primary mark of God's people throughout history is that God is with his people. It's really simple. 
but the identifying mark of God's people is that God is with his people, right? That we don't, what makes us distinctively God's people this morning, his church, his bride, his body, his family, and individually his sons and daughters, is not just that we check a box next to the correct doctrines, although doctrine and truth is of the utmost important, and I don't in any way mean to pit the presence of God and the truth of God against each other because it's not an either-or proposition, it's both, it's both and. Um, but the thing, again, that, that makes us his people is that God is with us. And I think a lot of times we tend to think that if we're God's people, then we're the ones that need to do something. We're the ones that need to make something happen. To be sure, there's action that needs to be, that needs to be taken. There's, um, there's steps of obedience. There's things we need, need to believe. Um, the Bible is fairly thick for a reason. Uh, there's a lot of truth we need to get down, down into us. Yet at the same time, the thing that ultimately sets us apart, no matter what right truth we say yes to, or no matter what acts of service we do, the thing that ultimately sets us apart is that God's presence is to be among us. That God's presence is to be, is to be real in our lives. And that's what you see in these first couple chapters of the book of Acts. And I, um, and I wanna just kinda talk about some of the big marks of what it looks like when, when God is with his people. Okay, so begin reading with me in Acts chapter one. I'm gonna be jumping around here. We're gonna get into Acts one and, one and two. I won't be able to cover everything, but Acts chapter one, um, verse four. It says, and while staying with them, Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. I love that little phrase, the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, and I love this, I want us to get this picture here, okay? So, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, Two men stood by them in white robes <laughs> and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way just as you saw him go into heaven. I love this picture that Jesus has been teaching them for 40 days and he's been talking about the Holy Spirit and again, we kind of get that now because we've read ahead and we, you know, we maybe have a, you know, kind of our doctrine built out of the Holy Spirit and what he does and we've read ahead and we've got Acts chapter two and we see how it's gonna come at the day of Pentecost. But you have to understand that these guys at this point in time, like they don't understand what he's talking about. Like when he says, when he says, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, have you ever been in that conversation with somebody where they're talking about something and you don't really get what they're talking about, but you pretend like you know what they're talking about? And you're like, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Peter's, you know, elbowing John. He's like, yeah, yeah, the, bap- yeah, the baptism. Are we, what? I mean, that's where, like, they, they just don't fully get it. And so this is the last thing that he says to him. And he's like, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to receive power. See ya. And he, and he goes up on a cloud, and they're left there looking. Now, I want to ask this question, okay? Because this is, this is I think this gets skipped over a lot of times uh, in our understanding of, you know, what's about to happen here with the Holy Spirit. Because, again, these two angels come. And whenever angels come in the Bible, um, you know, you might think about the Bible and think, well, man, angels are all, are all over the place. And they are to some extent. But it's like when angels actually show up. Like, and you can see them. Somebody has an encounter with them. It's a really, really big deal. It's like a really, really big marker in the scriptures. And, of course, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke also here, uh, this second account in Acts. And the last time we see two angels is actually at the empty tomb. And so when Jesus rises, you know, from the dead, they go and they check out the tomb and they go in and they don't immediately believe there again. They don't get it. Even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, they don't fully understand what just happened with the empty tomb. And so these two angels, probably the same guys, are there and they're like, hey, what, why, why do you look for the living among the dead? He says, he is risen, just as he told you. And even in the same way here, they don't really get this thing that's about to happen on the day of Pentecost about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is going to come in power, and they're standing there, and they're gazing into heaven. And, and so again, what I want to talk about this morning are these marks of what it looks like when God's presence is among his people. But my first point is simply this. This is what it doesn't look like. A spirit-filled life, God's presence among his people, does not look like us just standing there, staring stagnantly into the sky. This is not the spirit-filled life. But I love this picture because if I can be honest, it's, very, it's a beautiful picture, it's a very true-to-life picture to me because this is very much what sometimes I feel like our American Christianity has become. Several weeks ago, I talked about these, these different kind of partial gospels that are being preached. One of them is the forgiveness-only gospel. And hear me, forgiveness is so precious that each and every single one of us is born sinners. We're born enemies of God. And it is a precious thing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive our sins, to bear the wrath of God, to take the punishment upon himself that, that we deserve. And so I in no way want to minimize that. However, that's an incomplete gospel. And so many people have believed the forgiveness only gospel. And, and this is usually when you believe that truth that, you know, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. And so, yes, I want to pray the prayer because I don't want to go to hell. And so, yeah, I'm going to be with him forever in heaven someday. And then we stand around the rest of the time. Just waiting for him to come back. Guys, there's more than that. That's all I want to say, first of all, is that the spirit-filled life is not Christians standing around just staring blankly into the sky. And again, why, why, why did Jesus do it this way? Like, it's kind of dramatic, right? Like, you know, because if you read the resurrection accounts at the end of the Gospels, I mean, they're in a, in a room with closed doors, with locked doors, and all of a sudden, I love Jesus, like, the, that he does this, like, all of a sudden he just shows up, he's like, what's up? And, you know, they're like, you know, they think they've seen, he's like, no, 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 peace. Peace be to you, and I, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus was messing with him a little bit, but, um, but you know, he, like, like here, he could have said, like, okay, guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. You're not gonna see me again, and then, you know, maybe you kind of picture that scene. He just kind of walk off into the, into the sunset or something. 
But it's not even that. It's, he, he's literally ascending up on a cloud. And you're like, why the drama? Why so theatrical, Jesus? And I think the answer is, is that if he would not have gone in that way, and even though he did go in that way, they still didn't get it, he had to go in this dramatic way so that they would stop walking around on the earth continuing to look for him. That, there, that there's a transition that is happening here at this time and place in history. And Jesus is going up, and he's saying, guys, I'm going, and I know you don't fully understand this, but I'm gonna continue to do my work through the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit in you. And that's, guys, what we need, what I need you to hear this morning before we talk about the Holy Spirit and some of the marks of of what he does do and accomplish. So guys, we are the body of Christ. And the sovereign God can sovereignly choose to work in whatever way he wants, but the primary way in which he is sovereignly chosen to work on the earth from this time forward into the day and age in which we still live is through you and I. Are you with me? And the thing that you need to hear this morning, first of all, is that if you are going to live a spirit-filled life, if you're going to live a life that is controlled by the spirit, for your joy, for your good, but ultimately for the purpose of God's glory, then we gotta stop standing around going like this. Huh, interesting. Boy, I can't do that, those lights are blinding my eyes. Um, But you you get what I'm saying? We've got to move on. Too much of Christianity, uh, has given way to what you would call maybe an escapist mentality. That we've prayed our prayer and we've given God our afterlife and now we're just holding on tight till he comes back and we don't want to get left behind, right? Kirk Cameron got left behind. It wasn't, wasn't pretty. So, never mind. Have, you know what I'm talking about? Never. Okay, never mind. I tried to make a joke. It wasn't funny. Um, you know, we're just, it's not about just hanging on waiting to be raptured out. That the presence of God lives inside of us, and he has, and he has work <coughs> uh, that he wants to accomplish. And if we don't pay attention to this, then it's not just about us moving on, it's about, it's about other things moving on as well. Because again, the sovereign God has sovereignly chosen to use you and I as the means through which he now wants to bless the world and accomplish his mission. Have you guys ever been behind that person at the stoplight and they're in front of you and you're stopped and then the light turns green but they're not paying attention? Huh? Yes, we've all been. How many of you have been that person? Yeah, uh-huh, confession time. But you're there and that person's in front of you and it's like, you know, do you honk? Do you... Rev your engine a little bit. Like, what do you do? Because they're not, they don't see that the light is green, that it's time to go. Here's the thing. It's not just about them getting through the green light. It's also about everybody else behind them that can't get through the green light. You hear me? What I mean is, is that, guys, if we're just standing around staring into heaven again, you can say, well, God could just accomplish his purposes. He's a chosen to accomplish his purposes through you and I. And if we don't just stop standing, staring blankly at the sky, 
there's things that are not going to get accomplished. And again, this is the mystery. You guys know me. If you guys uh, have attended Mercy Hill for any amount of time, I, 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 I hold what I believe is the highest possible view of the sovereignty of God. Like, I don't get some of the stuff he does. I don't know how he's working everything out, but I, I believe that he is absolutely, positively working everything together for good. Even the evil in the world, I don't understand it because I know he's good. He's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody from evil, but somehow he's working all things together for good. At the same time, guys, we have to own the fact that if we're not paying attention, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind us that has to go forward, that he wants to get done and that he wants to accomplish. And that's why we should feel, we should feel uh, a weight, a weight to this. Um, so first of all, that's what I just want to point out, is that the spiritual life, it doesn't look like us just staring around staring stagnantly into, into the sky. Well, what does it look like? Well, so after the two angels come and they ask him, why are you standing here? You know, go back into Jerusalem and wait. They go, excuse me, and uh, they go back and they're not sure what to do. Verse 14, and all these with one accord were, devoted the, were devoting themselves to prayer. So when you don't know what to do, pray, all right? And pray even when you do think you know what to do. They're praying. And then, finally here, on the day of Pentecost, and I'll unpack that a little bit later, is why the day of Pentecost was so, was so significant. But here's, here's what we see, that when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit moves, one of the big ideas that I want you to get is that when the Spirit came, that worship now, worship, I believe is the end of all things that you and I, each one of us, were created to worship God. That worship no longer just happens in a place, but in a people. And so, this place that we sit this morning is not the worship center. You are the worship center. You are the place where God now dwells. And what I want to simply say about that is, is that I don't think we are nearly as amazed and grateful for this as we should be. Because Jesus paid an incredible price for this to be so. Here's the deal, is that, let me just read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven. Can you say that with me? And suddenly there came from heaven. That was really bad, let's try it again. And suddenly there came from heaven. One more time. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested where not just in this place, but on each one of them. That worship now is going to happen not just in a building, but in a place. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues. And listen, don't get, it's just, it's languages. It's literally languages. Then that's what you see happening here is that they hear people talking in these different languages. Um, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is part of why Pentecost is important because it was one of the festivals where everybody was supposed to come. Jews from all over the world were supposed to come 
to Jerusalem to take part in this festival. Verse 6, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And now as you do some a little uh, historical cultural background work here, what's really interesting about this is you just got to love this and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this but it's neat to point out is that Galileans, they, they, they talked they talked kind of like, I mean, we would say people from the South talk. You know what I'm saying? Hannah's from Georgia, and she is so shaking her head at me right now. I'm, I'm in big trouble with Hannah. But I'm, just, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to give you something to work. Like I, th- they had an accent. Galileans had a distinct accent, okay? But what's happening here is that all of a sudden when the Spirit comes, they are praising God in these other language, and they're saying it perfectly, and they're not speaking with an accent. That's why they say, are not all these Galileans? Like, where, where'd the drawl go? Where'd the accent go? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, so uh, all sorts of people. We hear, listen. End of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. That when the Spirit comes, worship happens. That every Sunday, and hear me, there's nothing wrong with this. Part when we sing on Sunday mornings together, like, like we sing as a way to, we want to be filled with the Spirit. We're seeking to be filled with the Spirit. We're seeking to, to, to come to hear from God and to, and to worship Him. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we, we sing and we worship to be filled with the Spirit. But on the flip side, when you're filled with the Spirit, you can't help but sing. You can't help but worship. And here comes the Spirit like a rushing, mighty wind, fire from heaven. And they cannot help but praise God. Now, here's why this is such a big deal, and you got to see this imagery of both fire and of wind, okay? And why it's such a big deal that now it's not just in a place, but it's on a people. It's because in the Old Testament, God set up this thing uh, th- th- called the tabernacle. Later on, uh, it, became, it became the temple. But two places very quickly, and we don't have time to unpack all of this. Um, some of you may be more familiar with the history of the Old Testament, but it's very important that we get this here because, or we don't feel the full weight of what is actually happening and the privilege that this is to be filled with the Spirit and to be able to worship God in this way. At the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, towards the end of that chapter, there's details as to how Moses finally filled in all these details of the tabernacle that God had given him. And in uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 33, it just simply ends with this little phrase. So Moses finished the work, the work of the tabernacle. And it says this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, listen, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, okay? And Moses, listen, was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from all over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and it was on it in fire by night. Okay, so the presence of God, God comes down in this cloud and in fire 
Okay, and this tabernacle is where God was trying to dwell with his people, yet you can see there's still a distance, that they can't get near when the glory comes. You say, why couldn't get, they get near? Here's the, the literal reason why. This is what God told them. Because you'll die. That's it. Like, my holiness cannot be approached by your unholiness. And I want to be with you. You are my people, but there's a problem here. And the problem is I'm holy and you're not. And it's not a small problem. And so if you get too close to my holiness, you will die. And so God dwells in this tabernacle. Later on in Israel's history, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it's now the tabernacle is kind of like this portable, you know, deal, tent that they would set up and move and through all their journey, uh, journeys and wanderings through the wilderness. But later on, Solomon builds it into this, this uh, building in one place, the, the, the temple, and it's, and it's beautiful uh, to the eye, and it's, and it's glorious. And in Second Chronicles, uh, ch- the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, this is when, uh, similar to what Moses did in finishing his work, that Solomon now finishes his work in uh, building this temple. And the end of chapter six of Second Chronicles says, now this is Solomon dedicating this place to the Lord. He says, now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, talking about the ark of the covenant. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord, do not turn away for the face of your, anoint, of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love uh, for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, so Moses finished the tabernacle, Solomon finishes the building of the temple, finishes his prayer. What comes down? It says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Verse two, and the priests so not just Solomon, but now the priests, people that were made to go and, and work in the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So again, God is renewing his covenant with his chosen people. His presence comes down, but there's still a problem. Is that they cannot fully draw near. Why? Because they would die. Because God is holy, and we are not. So Moses finishes the work. The fire of God, the presence of God fall from heaven. Solomon finishes the work. The presence of God, the fire of God fall from heaven. But people can only get so close. But listen, when Jesus Christ finished his work, now the fire, the presence of God comes down. And brothers and sisters, it cannot get any closer. Do you understand? Do you hear me? And here's the first application, is that I'm betting that most of us throughout this week have not prioritized or prized the presence of the Spirit in a way that is proportionate to the price that Jesus paid to give it to us. Is that there is one reason why now the holy can dwell with the unholy. It is the precious blood of Christ. 
It is glorious that God sent his son and he died and we have forgiveness of sins. Our salvation is multifaceted. There are so many that, that, we're, that we're redeemed, that we're reconciled, that we're born again, that we're made sons and daughters, that we were enemies, but now we're made friends. I mean, it just, our salvation, it, the Bible goes to great lengths to describe it in all sorts of ways, but one of the most precious things, and it's the thing that we overlook every, like every day in a powerful way, we, in a great way, we overlook this, is that Christ died ultimately so that his very presence, God himself, the Holy Spirit, could not just be around us or close to us or like at a temple where we could go, but in us. And that worship now does not just happen in a place, but it happens in a people. And that we are to be a people that carry around the fire, that carry around the presence of God, Fire gives birth to fire, gives birth to fire. I have four boys. When we don't know what to do, we burn things. <laughs> Hannah says, do something with the boys. They're bored, they're tearing up. Oh, let's go outside. What are we gonna do, daddy? Ah, let's burn something. Make a fire. And what do the boys like to do? They take a stick. They stick it in there because... It's just what we do as boys. I'm like, yeah, I join them, you know, stick the stick in there and, and the stick catches fire. You know, or sometimes they'll even wrap something at the, like something, catch fire. Then what do you do? You carry it around. And that's when we, then Hannah's like, this was not a good idea <laughs> that I told you. Because why? Because that fire gives birth to fire. And if it touches other things, it sets other things on fire. And here by, by the fire, listen, let me, let me be very practical. I'm talking about worship that we now are the worship center, and that worship would give birth to worship. This is what, I, I love the way Peter, I, I'm not a naturally gifted evangelist, and, this is, and so this verse very much helps me. I've shared this with you guys before, but I love the way Peter describes evangelism in First Peter. He says that we are those who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, I can get kind of nervous if I'm like having a conversation with you like one-on-one because I'm not like just naturally a gifted evangelist. But when I can just step back and I can just tell you about the goodness of God and what he's done in my life, evangelism doesn't seem so intimidating to me. It's just I'm just worshiping. And I want to invite you into that. And brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to do. Just so you can see here, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I should have showed you this earlier, but just explicitly where I'm saying that this is all because of what Jesus did. Um, we don't have time to go through all this, but Peter is gonna stand up because everybody doesn't understand what's going on, why these guys are speaking in different languages, praising God, and he stands up and he preaches this sermon. And towards the end of his sermon in Acts chapter two, verse 32 and 33, this is part of his sermon. And listen to the, the theological connection, again, that he makes between what Christ has done, why this presence of God, the Holy Spirit, this fire is able, able to come now. Verse 32, it says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. That the reason the Holy Spirit is able to be a reality in our life, that he wants to be a reality in our life, is because of what Jesus has done. That he died, 
The proof that his death was sufficient was the resurrection. He, res he was resurrected, but then he ascended. And when he ascended, he received this promise of the Father, as I pointed out earlier, what he calls it there in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and he pours it out because he's a generous, generous giver. I would also want to ask you this morning, where is the first place that you run when you need help in your life? Because Jesus did not die on the cross for your sins so that you could just run to man-made wisdom and to self-help remedies. He died on the cross for your sins so that the presence of God could now dwell with you. And so many of us don't turn to God and to the presence and the power of the Spirit until we've tried everything else. Guys, let's stop doing that. Can we? I'm saying that for myself too. Let's stop doing that. We, we prize and we treasure and we exalt the gift that God has given us when we run to it right away. And God is able to accomplish so much more than we could ever accomplish in and of ourselves. Again, wind and fire, wind and fire. That is a dangerous combination, right? I came out, I think, I feel like I, in this moment, like I've shared this with you before, but just pretend like you've never heard it before. Um, but when we go out to the uh, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, every now and then I've been out there a handful of times. One of the guys that we stay with is a guy named Dave Cattlecheck, and he owns uh, what he said is just a small ranch out there, about 3,000 acres. And um, it's in the, the southwestern part of South Dakota, and they, every now and then they experience wildfires. And he told us a story one time about several years ago how there were wildfires just burning up acres and acres of land out there and they didn't know what they were going to do. And I want you to imagine this. He said it was like a mile wide and it, was, and it was moving so fast. He said wherever the flames were, so the flames are here burning up, you know, the fields or whatever, but there, the, the dangerous part was that there was a wind behind it. And that wind was driving the fire to where the flames, from wherever, whatever was actually being consumed, that the flames were rolling out in front 80 feet in front of where, in front of where the fire actually was. And he said, like, you know, because when it's rolling that far out, like, you can't dig a ditch. It's just going to jump over the ditch. You can't just hose it down. Like, you can't get, you can't get close enough to get, get to the source. And thankfully, it stopped because it was coming, coming near his property. It wasn't sure what to do. But it's a, that combination of wind and fire. But guys, I, listen, it's not a thing of, you know, do we sit around and just pray for God to move? Or do we go out and do we try to do his work and be witnesses? Yes. <laughs> we do both. We don't have to choose between those two, but can I say that in all of our American get-or-done mentality, we tend to neglect the prayer and the calling on God to move in a supernatural way more than we neglect our part. Our part matters. But this is why, you know, and I was just this is something the Lord just spoke to my heart this morning as we were in prayer this morning. 
is that sometimes I can, I'm, I'm so, I can be so works-oriented that sometimes I can even view my prayer as a work. That my heart is so um, self-sufficient apart from Christ that sometimes I even think that in all my praying, it's like, well, God, I, I put in this amount of time, so surely you're gonna move now. Prayer is us stepping back saying, God, I, we're helpless, we're helpless, we're helpless. Can't do anything and we need you. Okay, so again, just value the presence of God. Finally here, um, when God's spirit comes, the, the marks of God's spirit is that, is that worship now isn't just in a place, it's in a people, but, but also that we should expect a harvest. And this is what's cool about Pentecost. I know I'm rolling into the end of my sermon here and this might be kind of technical, but hang with me, okay? Because this is cool. Can I get that chart up there, please? Uh, Josh, okay, so real quick, these are the, the, the seven feasts that God had set up in the Old Testament, okay? I won't go through each one of them, but Jesus and the Spirit and what God does, he, he is the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of all these things. So the easiest one that most of, you, most of us maybe understand is that Passover, okay? Passover was the, the feast that God instituted to celebrate the time when God brought his, the nation of Israel out of Egypt and they sacrificed a lamb and they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house and the angel passed over and would spare them if they were under, if they were under the blood, okay? So through, you know, throughout Israel's history, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs were offered, okay? Those lambs, they, they kind of appeased the wrath of God for a time, but it was more about those lambs were always supposed to be pointing forward to the perfect lamb that God would provide. You follow? And so Jesus, when he comes, Jesus dies, and he literally did die when he came in time-space history. He died on Passover, Okay? So Jesus is our perfect lamb. He now is our Passover lamb. And I'm just not gonna take time to go into the unleavened bread and the first fruits. But here's the deal, is that, is that you couldn't get to Pentecost, or the, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes the Feast of the Harvest, okay? You couldn't get there without Passover, because it, it happened 50 days uh, after Passover happened, then unleavened bread, then first fruits. Passover was kind of the thing that started it all, and then you had to count 50 days from there. Pentecost, penta means 50. And so 50 days uh, after Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, um, Pentecost would happen. So Jesus is our Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb. So our sins are forgiven. Now, on the day of Pentecost, here comes the Spirit. And the significance of this is just like they would sacrifice a lamb that was looking forward to the perfect lamb, okay, to come. In the same way, the Feast of Pentecost was all about the harvest. And it was the end of the harvest. And so they would bring some of their, you know, grain and their bread or whatever, and they would offer it, they would offer it to the Lord. Just like Jesus is the better lamb that we could never offer. He's the better sacrifice that we could never provide. In the same way, the Spirit is the better Pentecost that comes. And what happens? He brings a harvest. A harvest that we could never bring, folks. Just like we could never pay the price that Jesus paid. In the same way, the Spirit brings a harvest that we in and of ourselves could never bring. And if you look here after the Spirit comes at the end of chapter two, this is exactly what happens. Is that Peter stands up, he preaches, and they say, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 41, and so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Is that the Holy Spirit can do more in one day than what we could ever accomplish. Just like Jesus accomplished more on the cross than we ever could. And worship team, you can come up and we're gonna close. Uh, and that's just kind of my, my closing thought for us, especially for those of you that call Mercy Hill home. It's just simply this. Let's remember that. Let's remember that the Holy Spirit can do infinitely more in a day than we could ever accomplish in and of ourselves. And guys, I, I want us to have our hand to the plow. I want us to be at work. I want us to be faithful in building relationships and in sharing the gospel but I also want us to remember that unless the Holy Spirit of God blows among us, I, we can't do anything. And like I said at the beginning, understanding God's word rightly and what Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit wants to do should create in us, I think, this weird mingling of both helplessness but also hopefulness. Would you guys just bow your heads with me for just a second? Would you please just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask you this morning, where does your help come from? Where have you been looking? Jesus paid a great price so that his presence could dwell with you. God feels distant sometimes, I know, but he's not. And some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. that Jesus Christ has answers. The Holy Spirit has answers. God the Father has answers for absolutely everything. And while there may be some outward practical sins that you may need to turn from this morning and ask forgiveness of this morning and repent of this morning, the primary thing that we need to repent of is the fact that we haven't been acknowledging his presence in our lives. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we come to your table this morning, Father, we, we look not to this physical bread and this physical juice as something that saves us, 
But Lord, we look to your broken body and your shed blood as the only thing that can save us. And Father, I pray that as we come this morning, I pray that we would come in awe and in wonder of your great salvation and all that you did to be near to us. And Father, I, I pray that you would put in our hearts, individually but collectively as a church, God, I pray that you would help us to believe that your wind can still blow in a powerful, mighty way, just like it did on Pentecost, Lord. And God, our community, for as religious as it is and for as many churches as exist, we are not, it doesn't mean that we don't need your wind. It doesn't mean that we don't need your fire. Lord, help us to feel both helpless and hopeful. And I just pray that you would meet us uh, in that place, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're helping serve communion, you can come.